0: Session with Dr. Fadid Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadid Halaqoui, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Again, our studio number 3104410555. Didn't have a show Monday night because of the Labor Day holiday here in the United States. So we'll uh, do the books today. The book of the week for... This week is Demystifying Disability by Emily Ladau. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, Ladau, L-A-D-A-U. Demystifying Disability, What to Know, What to Say, and How to Be an Ally. This book came out yesterday, actually, so happy to have it in my hands and to be reading it this week and sharing it with you on Monday's show, Demystifying Disability, Emily Ladau. I think I said it three different ways. By Monday, hopefully I'll I'll learn the right one. All right, getting into last week's book that I'll talk about today, The Seven Deadly Sins of Psychology by Chris Chambers. The Seven Deadly Sins of Psychology, a manifesto for, for reforming the culture of scientific practice. And as happens sometimes, if I read a book, a book that's discussed in that book sounds interesting to me and I want to read it. And that happened when I read the book, The Quick Fix by Jesse Singal. And he mentioned this book, The Seven Deadly Sins of Psychology. And just on that title alone, you might think it means psychology as in our daily life or uh, our psyche. But what Chris Chambers is writing about in this book is about psychological research. And that as he sees it it's in a really bad state but we can change it and so uh, as you read this book you can feel that he's someone that is passionate about psychology and psychological research and wants things to be better and he himself is a professor of cognitive neuroscience Uh, he wants things to be better but he thinks that we need to make some changes, and he faces a lot of resistance. He talks about some of that in the book, and it does remind me of when people uh, look at their countries, and for example, in the United States, some people will say, you have to just love it as it is, and don't say anything bad about it, but really true patriotism, or really loving your country should mean that you are going to point out what's wrong with it, not just say it's right and good. It's actually because you love it that you want it to be better and you could see that it actually is in danger and peril if it does not change things same is true with anyone we love including ourselves we can try to deny or think it's better to deny that things are wrong because it might feel better in the moment and it could be tough for us to recognize and acknowledge faults or flaws but genuinely loving yourself or someone else means that we are open to looking at things objectively or as objectively as we can to try to find what's wrong with it, wrong with us, wrong with the situation, wrong with whoever we're talking about, and help them grow, support them in growing. And so in this book he is pointing out that we have some big big problems in the realm of psychological research and he points them out, these seven deadly sins, and then also suggests ways that we can try to make them better, reform that might lead to progress. And some of the things that he's talking about in psychological research are not just happening in psychology, they also are happening in other fields and other types of scientific exploration, but he's focusing specifically on psychology and how things need to change. And I've heard in recent years, some concerns and a crisis of sorts that A lot of very well known psychological research studies that have become very famous and taken as truth have been difficult to reproduce or they found issues in the original research. And so some people have done some large scale reproduction studies where they try to reproduce previous studies and they have had a hard time getting the same results or showing the same effects in really high percentages at times. So to begin with, we can also just talk about what is science or the scientific method, not in detail, but just to recognize that I might talk about this in the next segment too, but um, we sometimes think, well, if something is scientific, then it has to be right or true, or there can't be any issues with it if it is scientific. And so maybe I'll actually start with this point and then get into the book specifically. And so yes, science is a approach and a type of looking at information and trying to understand our reality or the world around us that attempts to be objective and unbiased and to understand the truth or get closer to understanding the truth. But we as humans are conducting the research and trying to create and conduct the scientific studies and we have many biases and things that we don't see in blind spots that we can't recognize and also just because it's a scientific method doesn't mean it's going to be perfect so if we look at kind of a uh, brief and very um, abbreviated type of history of medical research, for example, we can see how this is the case because you might think, well, if something is science, then it must be true. And it doesn't mean that science isn't our best understanding of the truth. But it also doesn't mean that we don't have to be vigilant to see where things can go wrong so let's say before hundreds of years ago they wanted to test um there's some let's say disease that's going around they want to test some treatment so some doctor says look i've created this treatment that i think helps because it's helped some of my patients get better and so they give it to some patients and voila some of them get better so they say well the medicine must work and so this was in some ways the state of science how they understood things and so they thought that was okay till someone realized well you know what some people get better even when we don't give them medicine some people just get better without medication at all so how do we know the medicine was helping them so we didn't even realize this was a type of bias we had in what we thought was a scientific method that was actually muddying the results or what we were seeing so okay Let's compare them to people who don't get the medicine, kind of like a control group. So some people get the medicine, some people don't. And then we say, oh, see, the people who got the medicine did better. The medication must be working. Then this seemed to be okay until we realized, wait a second, you know, just the fact that someone's getting medication or knowing they're getting a treatment might make them feel better or might make them respond in a more favorable way. Okay, so we need to come up with placebos, meaning that we give some people a medication, we give other people like a sugar pill, so they think they're taking a medication. We don't tell them who's getting what, and let's see who gets better. So we figured it out, now everything is okay. And so we see, oh again, look, the people who got the medication did better than the people who got the placebo sugar pill, so everything is okay. And it could seem like this was enough, but then we realized, wait a second, if the doctors know who's getting the medication and who's not getting the medication they might treat these patients differently they might even um, you know look at things differently they might see the same symptoms but if they know they got the medication they might see it in a more favorable light especially let's say if the doctor has created this treatment and they know that it could lead to them becoming very wealthy and well known and famous for coming up with this treatment they might be treating the patients differently and also observing the patients differently. Just because they know who got the medication and who didn't so we thought we'd figured it out and we thought that we were unbiased in how we were doing the research we have some people getting the medication and some people don't and they don't know whether they're getting it or not but then we realized, oh wait the doctors the people treating the patients and observing the patients they could be biased too so then they came up with things like double blind studies. It means that some people are gonna get the medication, some people are not, and not even the doctors are going to know who got what treatment, the real treatment and the placebo, and then let's see what happens now. And so we can see that these steps that took place, at every step along the way, people thought they were doing things in an unbiased way. It looked like we're just observing things. But we weren't taking into account various factors that could make our observations more or less valid. That actually maybe even though we think we've figured it out, we're still not there. And so of course we have to think that, and there's even more steps along this journey that have happened and that's just specifically to research with like a new treatment for some disease or some issue. But more steps have happened in this process more further than what I've even explained briefly here, and we have to also have the humility that although we think now we've figured out all these different forms of bias and biases that might impact the way that we do research, we, of course, are probably not aware of something that later will come to mind or bring brought to our attention that actually this also is happening, that we thought this was a unbiased way, objective way of getting to the truth, but we were missing something really important, and so now we have to make another type of adjustment. So I say all this to help us recognize that although science is our best understanding of the truth or our best understanding of what's happening around us or it can be the best way it doesn't mean it is definitely giving us the truth and it doesn't mean that there are no ways that it can be actually leading us astray i think sometimes people think well it's science or it's scientific method and so because of that nothing can be wrong about it but That's definitely a very simplified view. And so I think uh, I wanted to talk about this point a bit here, but also later on I'll talk about how I think we can try to look at science in a healthier way than we sometimes can. Like many things, it becomes black or white. Either you trust it or you don't, when really it, it has to be a level of gray. Because part of what we tend to do is, We don't want to think for ourselves because that can require a lot of effort and we can be wrong. We often try to find a way to or find some method or means or someone else does it for us or some group does it for us. So we don't have to think. So we see this in religion where often it's we just submit ourselves to some higher power. Or some book or some set of rules that we have been told and we believe and internalize that this is the truth this is the only way the right way and so if I follow this book or these teachings or the people that talk from this book I don't need to think for myself anymore or we also find gurus or other people that can do the thinking for us and we don't have to think anymore and also people can use science in that same way where they think well And it could feel like the more enlightened way. So sometimes people look at religion in a way of blindly believing and following. Sometimes people can do that with science, which sounds better in a lot of ways. I actually think it is because there's something to it that isn't just based on a blind faith. There's a sense of um, something that's self-correcting and has progress. But at the same time, it doesn't mean we can ever stop thinking for ourselves. Even within the scientific community, there's going to be disagreement, even within certain understandings of what's going on we make progress and things change but what i'm going to do is after the break i'm going to get into the book itself that was more of a uh, kind of editorial on science and the scientific method and how we look at science i'll talk about the book but then in this third segment i'm going to get into our belief or the ways that we interact with science and some thoughts on that Uh, and how we can figure out what to do and this topic comes up a lot these days when we look at things like climate science and climate change and also the vaccine where people can have some thoughts about well do we trust science do we don't what should we do a great book that i talked about i think maybe about a year ago why trust science by naomi oreskes i'd highly recommend on this topic but i'll share some thoughts about that in the third segment so after the break we'll talk about the book the seven deadly sins of psychology by chris chambers and then after that we'll talk a bit about science our belief of science and how we can have a healthier relationship with that we'll be right back So in the first segment, I was talking about some thoughts on science and recognizing that although we can sometimes think that, well, something is scientific, that means that it's correct, but really science is a process and we're trying to become more correct or approximate, closer to the truth, and also try to understand the ways we do science to make them closer to this ideal that we're trying to get to of being objective or as objective and unbiased as we can be and so in the book of the week from last week that i'll now get into the seven deadly sins of psychology by chris chambers he gets into what he calls are these seven deadly sins that he is seeing in psychological research some of them are in other types of research as well but specifically he comes from that perspective and also some reform as the subtitle says a manifesto for reforming the culture of scientific practice and so i'll talk a bit about these different sins that he talks about i might not get into all seven of them in detail but um, the first one is an interesting one for me because i've seen this uh, talked about much more which is the sin of bias and there's a bunch of different Ways We can look at this bias when it comes to psychological research, but one issue, which is not um, just a issue in psychological research, is that when articles are submitted to be published, the ones that get published are usually the ones or almost always the ones that show some type of an effect, meaning that if you're trying to say this treatment, let's say, or this uh, technique helps change something as compared to what is generally done or placebo or nothing, nothing being done a control group, they only will accept articles where you find a difference. So if you say, let's say treatment A is better than the regular treatment, which is treatment B, but you find that actually they're about the same, if you submit them, uh, you're this paper, you usually won't get accepted because it's almost like they'll say you don't have results. Now, of course, science needs to be where any kind of data is data, not just what might be considered interesting or exciting. And so because the publishing uh, of these journals is a commercial type of a thing where they want to be interesting and exciting and innovative, it unfortunately could lead to many papers that don't find an effect in the way that they are, are looking for to not be published, something that's called the file drawer problem or file drawer concept or issue, which is essentially that a lot of research that gets done never sees the light of day because it doesn't meet this type of Uh, Standard, not really standard as in how good the research is, but it doesn't meet the type of standard of what the journals are looking for. So there's a big publication bias. So, for example, one person did a study showing that treatment A helps people and they found an effect and this becomes very famous and well known, but then five other people try to do a study showing that that same treatment didn't help, will only see the first one, or we'll tend to only see the first one that showed the effect, and it can make it seem like, well, there's never been a case where this was not true, so it looks like this is true, and it makes us feel more and more confident that the effect that was originally found is something very real is something that we can rely on or count on or talk about as a real phenomenon. And this leads to us then putting more and more weight into that. And another thing uh, that this does is that, well, if let's say someone did a study 40 years ago and found some effect, and since that time either people didn't replicate it or if they did and if it supported it, they talked about it, but if it didn't, they maybe didn't get talked about, well, then it makes us feel like this this thing, this concept is very, very real. And I've experienced that too, just in my career as a psychologist or studying psychology, even in undergrad, hearing about certain studies over and over again, it makes you feel like it's very real. But then sometimes people will go back and try to actually replicate it or look at the details of the research, and they'll find that actually, maybe it's not even true. But it's so hard for us to then shake that idea out of our head, which let's say for 30 years has seemed like some kind of scientific truth or scientific reality. So unfortunately, when you get positive results, positive in the sense that you show a difference of something, this tends to have much more likelihood of seeing the light of day. But when we're trying to be scientific and look at all the data, we want to see all the time something happened and all the times it didn't happen. That's the only way we can try to understand something is seeing how it worked and also how it didn't work. So there's a sin of bias where we unfortunately don't get to see things or, or see all of the research when it comes to a certain topic. And also related to that, lots of journals don't actually publish reproductions or replication studies. So if someone says, you know, someone did that study 3 years ago and they found this phenomenon and it's, you know, seems really interesting. We want to do that same experiment again to make sure it's true, to to prove its reliability and its validity. But oftentimes journals will say we don't even publish those things. So it creates a huge disincentive to try to replicate studies, but this is actually bad for science because science means self-correcting and self-correcting constantly, which means we have to look at what we think we know and challenge it to see if it's really true. Um, There's also ways that researchers, this is the second sin of hidden flexibility, they can do certain things to try to find findings or to create findings using different statistical methods, just to create what's considered a statistically significant finding. Uh, which I won't get into those details exactly, but generally speaking, when you find something being statistically significant, that means you're saying that there's only a 5% chance that you would find uh, research or the data you found or more extreme data based on what you observed. So it's kind of trying to say, this seems like a real thing. It's unlikely if our treatment didn't help people, let's say, that you'd find these types of results. Um, But as he talks about, unconsciously and sometimes very consciously psychologists and people doing this kind of research will find ways to keep doing different calculations even if they didn't make a hypothesis they'll test different things and once they find something that meets that threshold then they'll publish that and even sometimes do something called harking so it's hypothesizing after the results are known which essentially means that you look for something that shows a significant result, even if you didn't predict it. And then when you write your paper, you make it seem like this was your hypothesis all along, which is very unethical and very against the scientific method. But it's a very, very common thing, as he talks about in the book. And so as I mentioned, the third sin of unreliability that oftentimes research is not uh, replicated and because it's not replicated we don't really see if the phenomenon is true or how true it is how strong it is if there are some ways that we actually can find that it might be only true in circ- certain circumstances but these types of studies very rarely get funded, very rarely get published, and so because of that they very rarely get done. But as I mentioned before if we don't do replication studies we can't really understand or recognize if what we observed and what we think is some kind of truth is really as true as it appears. Uh, Another sin is the sin of data hoarding that he talks about which is that uh, when you think of science you would think it should be some kind of open understanding and exchange of ideas and so one of the ways this can be done or one factor involved is for researchers to make their data publicly available in some way meaning that people other scientists can look at it they can look at the data in different ways they can evaluate what you did uh, all those types of things but actually Very commonly, people don't share their data. They definitely don't make it public, which is a very common thing. And also, even if you ask for it, it's very hit or miss, even though generally speaking, it's considered that you should share your data if it is requested by another scientist. Very often, people don't. They might just fail to respond or they might say for some specific reason they can't share it, but they'll make some excuse not to share what they're doing. And unfortunately, this can help. Uh, First of all, prevents the dissemination of information, which can get in the way of scientific progress, but it can also make it that people um, can't look at what other researchers are doing to sometimes catch either conscious or unconscious types of fraud that might be happening. So it's sad to see this because you would think people would be very open about their uh, research if they wanted to contribute to progress, but for many reasons, they might choose not to from maybe they're afraid people will find something that they did you know, and be exposed, whether they did it consciously or unconsciously. Also, they want to make sure they get all the credit for the type of research they're doing. So they might say, well, someone else might try to get credit for this and I did all the work behind it. Uh, but another issue here is that the data... Um, is being collected by studies that are funded publicly. Almost all grants that are being provided to conduct the research at universities is funded publicly, but then the public and others even can't access it. So here, one of his reform uh, suggestions is open access, meaning that data should be made public and everyone should be able to access, access it if they so please. The next sin that he talks about is the most direct type of uh, corruption which is fraud and so it's called the sin of corruptibility and this is where it's not some kind of accident or some way of massaging data in a way using statistical techniques this is when someone flat out lies and makes up fake data and makes up fake studies even and so he shares a few studies of uh, or instances of several prominent psychologists researchers who got caught committing fraud which means to the point that they would literally make up a whole study or they would just create data sets, change the data around to make it fit their narrative, fit their study, and they actually became quite prominent. And it wasn't until sometimes research assistants or others uh, saw that some things were fishy and they finally um, exposed those individuals. And so it's sad to think about this, but it's a real reality that... It's not common, but people are out there that will commit fraud, straight up create fake research because of the benefits that come with it. And so they learn how to make a publishable paper. And in the world of publish or perish, they just want to get something publishable so they know how to make it happen. They, f- they create a study, make it sound interesting, and then they um, find a way to then create the data that matches what they're looking for. And he also shares how, unfortunately, when younger scientists or research assistants try to come forward to point out the fraud or just some suspicions they're having, generally speaking, as is often the case for many whistleblowers in different areas uh, of life, they don't get responded to well at all. And they can be punished directly or indirectly for it. There tends to be a lot of sweeping it under the rug, and they might be the ones that actually face consequences rather than the scientist who is committing fraud, which is quite sad. So he does share that we need to change this culture to make it easier for people to come forward, to know also who they can come forward to, to share that they uh, are seeing something fishy going on and they're not sure what's happening, but that they, they want to for things to be looked at. Uh, Another one related to holding on to the data, data hoarding is the sixth sin, which is the sin of internment, which is that people don't tend to have access to the journals. I remember both in undergrad and when I was working on my own dissertation in, in graduate school, when you would try to access an article, most of the times you couldn't. Sometimes through your university you could, but a lot of times you could not, and you would have to pay a fee to see the whole article you could see usually the abstract, which is like a summary of the research, but you weren't able to access the full research, which actually would help you understand it better and then be able to uh, then contribute, let's say to your own research in some way, in a better way. But again, we see here that publicly funded research is not accessible to the public most of the time. And so this can be, a big problem and something that is taken for granted and there's these journals and they are often obviously for profit so they create these ways of getting paid from universities to have access to them but most people can access them and even many times people at universities can't especially in uh, poorer countries they might not have access because their universities don't have the funds to subscribe to these different journals And so they can't even access the research to then try to contribute more research or further science in a way. So we can see that this gets in the way of science when we hide away data, we hide away the research, and it keeps it that so just a few people benefit from it. And of course, those few people tend to resist change, because if you're benefiting from a system, uh, anytime there's a type of innovation, you're going to see it as a threat. So you're, of course, not going to be okay with that. But so he is recommending that we need to have open access to publishing. We need to have open access to the data in general. We need to make things more transparent and open. And related to transparency, uh, there's also this concept of pre-registration. So to prevent people to go back and try to find different research that fits their hypothesis or find data that, that they could say was their hypothesis, they have to say in advance what are their different um, hypotheses, their methods, the type of statistical tests they're going to run, make everything clear in advance so they don't go back and use these techniques to try to make something out of nothing or to make something that they didn't predict seem like they were trying to predict it all along. And the seventh sin that he discusses is the sin of bean counting, which is essentially that people are measured in uh, academia by things like how many papers they publish, and then also the strengths of the journals they publish. And he shares how these things, the journals, um, have something called a, I think, a the journal impact factor a way of ranking different journals but he shows and talks about people who have looked at these types of concepts and found that they have very little actual value and shouldn't be given a lot of weight but that these things are and also the number of published papers and also the author you are because usually if you're first author that means you made the biggest contribution but so there's all these factors that he's talking about here in bean counting where the way we measure our scientists is generally not really so connected to their scientific contribution. It's these different measures that we now have come up with to try to count something um, that loses, in a sense, the essence of what's going on. And he had an interesting um, quote here. Or There's this uh, Good Law of Economics, um, and it says that when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. So this reminds me of things like uh, testing in schools here in America where they can get so focused on these tests, these standardized tests, for example, that are taken initially to say, let's measure our education, but then because we get so obsessed with the measure, it no longer, uh, and that becomes the target, we no longer measure what we're looking for. So students aren't necessarily going to learn, and the teachers might not even be so concerned if the students are learning. They just want to make sure they do well on these standardized tests, so do they know how to answer those questions, not necessarily have they learned the content or the lif- different topics that we'd hope they would learn from. And so at the end of the book, although throughout the book, he Talks about reform ideas. He shares a chapter on redemption, as he calls it, which is looking at how we can address these different sins. And he does say that he knows it would be a very challenging road for us to overcome all of this, but he fears that if we don't face it, we will unfortunately see almost the demise of psychological research or it will have very little value. And at the beginning of the book, there's this quote by F. Scott Fitzgerald. One should be able to see that things are hopeless and yet be determined to make them otherwise. And I think it's obvious why he picked that quote because he himself sees that things can almost seem homeless, hopeless um, with the state of affairs of psychological research, but he probably has some hope or else I don't think he would write this book. And uh, He's optimistic enough to try to make things otherwise. And so in this book is his attempt to show where we're going wrong, And that if we don't make some changes, we're going to end up in a really bad place and even further bad than we are right now or worse than we are right now. And here are some things we can do to to change it. Things like being much more transparent and open. Um, Even he talks about potentially getting rid of journals altogether and publishing could be done in some other way. And to me, that does make sense because if we don't have more of the research out there and only a limited amount of it sees the light of day because it's quote unquote interesting or innovative in a very specific way we're going to miss out on a lot of the data that will help us actually understand what's going on out there so i, I thought it was interesting and important for me to read this book because uh, i'm a psychologist myself I read a lot of psychological research, both in general, but also many of the books I read are written by psychologists sharing their psychological research. And so it helped me be aware of some of the issues that are happening in the field to try to spot them a little bit more, to be aware of what's happening and to see if there's any way I can promote some of the changes that he recommends. So that was the book, The Seven Deadly Sins of Psychology, A Manifesto For Reforming the Culture of Scientific Practice by Chris Chambers. Let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So I talked about the book, The Seven Deadly Sins of Psychology by Chris Chambers. And as I mentioned in the first segment, I wanted to talk a bit about our relationship with science and what does that even mean when i say our relationship with science in some ways it's really more about our relationship to the scientific community and then related to that or based on that our relationship or the way we interact and relate with the findings of the scientific community and these days this is a fairly hot issue uh, has been for quite some time. Things like climate change have been very polarizing and, and other related topics. But with the vaccine, we're seeing a big uh, discussion, discussions about, well, can we trust science and scientists? Should we trust them? Um, are they right? Or are they not right? And so because of that, just wanted to share some thoughts on that since I was talking on a book that was looking at science within the field of psychology and some of the issues that it has. And so we might want to think of how do we approach things when it comes to science. So to begin with, science is imperfect at all times. It's not that there are truths that we know are true in all circumstances for sure. Essentially what science says is it creates hypotheses. And based on those hypotheses, we test whether or not they are true. And in a way we might say, okay, this. This uh, hypothesis has not been proven false, but we can't say that it's definitely 100% true. And that's why most scientists won't say something like, this is proven to be true. Uh, You might see it in advertisements, and you might see it when journalists write about science, that they'll say, this has been proven. But really, we can't talk that way for being truly scientific. We can say there's evidence supporting this, uh, or many uh, studies, or many different types of evidence point to this type of a theory or understanding, but truly we can not say we know for a certainty that something is true for sure. Now, that being said, it can make it seem like, well, we don't know anything, but that's not true either, because when we look at how we understand science, or if we look at how we look at and deal with our life, we have to make choices based on what we know or the best of what we know. Every moment you decide to do certain things, you can say, well, I don't know if, you know, if electricity and everything scientists know about electricity is right. And that would be true. We don't know if it's all right, but you still will likely flip the switch in your house and expect that lights will turn on that will illuminate your space and, and what is around you. So we have to, at any given time, make choices. And that's constantly a part of the human experience really of any animal. But in humans, we can think of things in a more abstract way and can think of more choices and think further ahead than other creatures. But we constantly are making a decision based on incomplete information. You don't know for sure almost anything that you're doing, but you constantly choose what you think is best based on what you know. Okay, I think that, uh, you know, walking there is better than driving there. For this reason, I'm going to walk there today. I think that this food will make me feel better because right now my stomach feels this way, so I eat that. I don't know for sure. Specifically, that one that I'm eating can also have some issue with it. Or I misjudged what I was feeling and didn't really predict quite right how I was going to feel if I ate that thing, but I make a decision. So we don't want to look at because science is incomplete in the way that it can't know something for sure, that means that it has no value and we know nothing. And this is something that we've seen during the pandemic where a new virus, it was called the novel coronavirus, meaning it was new, uh, took over and was infecting people. And we did see the scientific community change what they were saying at different times. Um, And so many people took that to mean that The scientific community was lying, the scientific community doesn't know anything, various different issues, rather than seeing that this is how science progresses, that when we especially encounter something new, now we have understanding of other viruses, other coronaviruses specifically, other things about the human body and how it responds to things, Um, but anytime we encounter something new, there has to be new ways of trying to understand the information, meaning that what we think at some given time should change when we get more information. That would make sense, that we're not gonna fully understand it. Not only that, as we've also seen, the virus itself is not a static thing, it's been changing and we see these different as well so we can see that it's not something that we can say you fully know it and that's it and there's nothing new that you can know about it so we have to recognize that although science is going to be imperfect it doesn't mean that what it's understanding is meaningless or is based on nothing at all because it changes it actually makes sense that our understanding of something will change with the more evidence that we have the more information data in a way than knowledge that we have about it so when we look at the coronavirus, we want to be very aware of that. And when we look at the scientific community, we should expect that things have to change because there's no way to fully know anything, period. But especially with something new, we should anticipate that things are going to be slowly coming in more information more understanding we thought it was this way but it turns out it's more this way or we thought it was just this but it's this and something else those types of things are actually how science progresses and how any type of information gathering progresses you meet someone and you think oh he seems like a jerk But then you get to know them better You say, okay, we thought he was a jerk But also he has this part of him And that part of him And actually the part we thought he was a jerk It turns out he was just having a really bad day So he's actually quite nice Or whatever else You take in more information So any time we're gathering information about something And especially about something new There has to be a process Of things being updated and changing And so that's part of science Is that it's constantly Trying to self-correct and update It doesn't mean that there's nothing there it just means that there's new information that always will tend to lead to updating things whenever things need to be updated to then fit that data or fit what we then see sometimes we haven't observed something long enough or in certain settings to fully understand it and so because of that things can change just like in physics we thought we understood it and newtonian physics explained everything but then quantum physics came along and made us realize that at some level there's some things that we can't at all understand, and we definitely can't explain using classical Newtonian physics, and so we don't have it all figured out. That we thought this explained everything, but Newtonian physics works for almost everything, but then at certain levels, at the quantum level, it falls apart. It definitely cannot explain that. And again, we can see that using Newtonian physics for most people most of the time, or almost all people all of the time, works quite well. You don't need to understand the quantum, or really no one fully understands it, but we don't need to even incorporate into the way that we do things, because we can survive quite well when you're doing things in your car, when you're walking, when you're interacting with your environment. Newtonian classical physics does just fine. It gets the job done. Um, And so science gets the job done. It's always going to need to be improved um, and and be worked on. But an analogy I like to think of is, well, if you're on a plane, and first of all, just being in a plane, you might think, well, they don't know aeronautics perfectly. But I think you would say, well, I'd want aeronautic scientists to create the plane, develop the plane, test the plane. And then once you're on the plane, pilots are not perfect, but if you're on a plane and let's say something happened to the pilot of the plane, you wouldn't just say, well, any random person should go fly the plane. You'd say, I would want someone who's a pilot if someone actually, oh good, there's a passenger and she was a pilot for the last 30 years, let's have her fly the plane. Um, We wouldn't just say anyone is equal because no one knows anything and no one's perfect. No pilot is perfect, but we'd still want the ones that know the best and have the most experience to go fly the plane. And similarly, when it comes to science, I think it's important that we look at the people who have studied different types of phenomenon and have researched it and understood it. Although we know it's not going to be perfect, I think turning to them and trusting them at some level, doesn't mean blind trust, but a certain degree of trust, is the appropriate approach because there's really not much else you can do. So this doesn't mean don't look into things yourself, because as I talked about in the book, scientists make mistakes. Scientists can be even fraudulent intentionally. Scientists can have bad methods that they don't realize are bad. And so it's important to be vigilant. As I shared in the first segment, we at times want to not have to think for ourselves because it can be very uh Scary at times, or very difficult to think about things, especially to think about so many different things. And so, sometimes we like to think, I don't have to think about this issue at all. I can just turn to someone else. That's not healthy either. And what I'm going to do in the next segment is talk more about this side of either fully believing or fully not believing. Um, But to me, it makes sense to look at the scientific community when it comes to different issues and recognize that they have the best understanding about an issue. Doesn't mean they fully understand because science is a ongoing process. Doesn't mean they're not going to second guess or change their ideas, especially as new information comes in. And it doesn't mean there's gonna be a perfect, um, you know, homogeneity within that field. You can look at any field, even the physical sciences and some scientists will disagree on certain details especially sometimes on bigger theories and when you come to the social sciences well it's even further there's some ec- economists who are very free market and think that that's the only way there and capitalism is the right way to do things some will be much more looking at socialism as what they think is the best way to uh, create our economic system and so these are both they could be people with phd level um phds in economics and they've studied it for years and they can disagree doesn't mean there's nothing there But it does mean that it's a recognition of when we look at science, especially the social sciences, there is a lot of gray area. And that doesn't mean it's all fake or there's nothing to learn from it, but that the findings that are there or the gleanings we can take from it might not be as black and white as one might hope. But that's really the reality. And we don't do well with gray. We like black and white. So we prefer when an economist says, if you do this, this is exactly what's going to happen. I know what will happen if we make this change. But truth is, no one can know that with a certainty. They can, based on some evidence and based on theories, come up to explain why they think this would happen. But if someone tells you they know for sure that this is going to happen if you make some economic change, to me that means that they are trying to either sell themselves or sell their idea, or they're maybe doing it to be hyperbolic or to be dramatic about it. But it can't be a genuine economic theory to say something for sure is going to end up this way. And that's why I find it so puzzling and really laughable that the ways people talk about things on social media is so definitive, that this is the stupidest thing, that if we do this, America, this will happen to America. If we do this, this will happen to America, or this is the worst way. This is the best way when they're not even scientists in those fields on top of that. But even the scientists can't be certain. I find it really laughable, as I said, to think in this way or to think that, you know that you for sure know what will be the result of something, or you for sure know what's the best economic plan, the best public health plan and policy, when no one fully knows, but we think, and it gets more attention on social media when you say things in that way, and unfortunately this gets promoted more and more to think in this way and talk in this way that I know rather than, I think this might be likely or this is how I see the thing, but I could also see this side. That's gonna get a lot less attention than someone says, this is how it is and you're stupid if you think otherwise. People on your side will look at it, people against you might hate it and also look at it, and you'll get a lot of attention. And sadly, those eyeballs are what sells and those eyeballs are what gets uh, things attention, which is what people tend to be looking for, especially on social media. And that becomes the narrative and the rhetoric that we're getting into more and more. So now let's go to another commercial break. After the break, I'll talk a bit more about these ideas related to science and our relationship with it. Uh, you can also call in, it doesn't have to be about uh, these issues specifically, zero555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So as I mentioned before the break, I wanted to talk some more about our relationship with science, how we look at it, how we take the information that scientists tell us, do we trust it, not trust it, and all of that. So we don't like uncertainty, which is something I mentioned in the last segment. We want to know things because it always feels a little bit uneasy, creates a little anxiety when we don't know. And this is why we tend to like things to fit a story also, which has other meanings for us. But in general, we like things just to make sense. Okay, this is how it is. Yes, you should do this. Always do this. Never do this. Those rules are a lot easier to follow than sometimes do this. Or it's a case-by-case type of a thing. Or you have to look at different issues from different angles and then make a decision. But no one can tell you for sure something is a certain way. People don't do well with that. So when it comes to science, we can see similar things happen, where it's that some people might feel like either always trust scientists and think they are always right, and some people might think they are always wrong and don't trust them no matter what. It's never the right thing. And so when we try to look for certainty, we look to different people, different concepts or ideas, or different um, even ideologies that might take away our feeling of one having uncertainty and two not knowing what to do so if we follow a religion so this isn't to get into if religion what you believe or if you should believe it but if we do look at what religion does it gives you a sense of certainty that this is the right way and if i follow it it's right and you also don't really have to think for yourself anymore you already know what you believe and this is the truth this is the right way of living life this is the right way to be and if i do it i'm living a good life there's nothing else for me to question or think about or i might think about or question it but within this framework only so sometimes we'll see religious people will tell you why. Oh, do you see the wisdom in this teaching? And there obviously can be wisdom in it. But sometimes you can see very easily they know the conclusion they want, which is that this teaching or this rule is right, and they find a way. Oh, wow! See how brilliant it is? Because see, if you do da 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 da, you then can do this and that, and so it makes it the best way to do things. Wow! It's so wise. But they don't recognize that someone that doesn't believe the way they do won't see that same wisdom. They'll just hear something and think, well, I don't totally agree with it or I actually don't think it makes sense at all. But they won't have that same feeling about it because once you believe that something is the truth, which has more of an emotional component, then you can logically find a way to make it seem really, really good and right. Even I'm sure that if you go to many religious people and tell them, did you know in your book it says this? they might say, oh, wow, that is really amazing. Yes, I can see why that's so good. I've even done that myself or I've seen it. And then if you tell them, oh, actually, I was actually just kidding. It's exactly the opposite. They'll probably find way with, oh, actually, no, but I can see how that might be not the right way. And even though that time it was good, it's actually a test to do it the other way. So we just find a way to justify what we already believe. We are very, very good at that, whether we're talking about religious types of beliefs or if we're talking about what we want to do. And so what I like to think is that we all have a immediate gratification lawyer in our heads, which is very good at finding a reason why and reasons why we should do what feels good in the moment. Well, you know what? I really shouldn't go for that run today because it'll probably make me tired throughout the day anyway. Or, oh, I can indulge in this piece of cake because you know life is short and tomorrow I can eat better or I shouldn't really push myself to do that thing it might be more important for me to stay here and take it easy we're very good at justifying what we're doing and we see this in a very clear way when it comes to things like addiction where we're very good at finding a way to go towards whatever the addiction is to make us feel better in the moment even though we know that in the long run it will cost us and be bad for us. So religion can give us that certainty and now what I've noticed and many people have noticed that religiosity has become less, it hasn't gone away and it's still very strong, especially around the world, but we see less of it. And so I've seen people going to another, another extreme or another side of things. And so they're not religious and they think, oh, people who are religious are so stupid and you know, don't think for themselves, but then they turn towards science, which I think has some more merit to it, but they also turn to it in a blind way too, that scientists so good. And they might even go to that other extreme that anything, any scientist says, I believe and I follow and I instantly take as the truth because I'm so enlightened and forward thinking. And so I think, I personally think it's good to look to scientists and look to people in various fields who are the experts who have studied it and who have the best understanding of it, but I think they have the best understanding, not some ultimate truth. That does, that means that I have to not think about it at all. And so going to that other extreme, which many people have, is you can see that people take science now as a religion, that I don't have to think for myself anymore because the scientists will do all the thinking for me. And it's always right, right. And it's always true. So that itself can be its own issue of not letting yourself think for yourself or finding a way, a different type of certainty. It has to be the truth. And also, I don't have to think for myself anymore. They're going to do all the thinking for me. But if we look at research, we can see if we look at it with a more skeptical eye, we might find that, well, I'm not sure if this part of it makes sense or I wouldn't make the same conclusions this scientist is making based on that. And we still need to think for ourselves. And especially because, as I said, almost in any field of science um, in the scientific community, there is some degree of Disagreement; It still does exist to a certain degree. And so really to believe in science in that way takes a lot of faith as well, because yes, we might think it's science, but of course you don't see any of the data. Any of us can say we believe in climate science and we think, oh, well, look, I've seen the weather change. But we know that these type of phenomenon are much more complicated than you can just say, well, it's getting colder, so there's no global warming, it's getting hotter, there is global warming, it creates all sorts of factors that are hard to measure and hard for any of us who are lay people to fully understand and definitely to measure, we don't have the tools to measure it. And so we have to look to others. So I, I also understand that that I think it does make sense that if I was going to build a building, my uncle is a wonderful and brilliant electrical engineer. I wouldn't think, well, I'm gonna figure out how to power this building in a way that makes sense, I would turn to him and trust him. I might ask him some questions to understand certain things, but I wouldn't say, well, I know it better than him. So I'm going to figure out how to, you know, do the electricity for this building and the wiring, the power better than he does. I would have faith in him and believe in him that he will do the best job but I would still understand he could get it wrong I wouldn't think he's infallible that he can't make a mistake and that's where we have to recognize there's some level of recognizing the infallibility is not possible that everyone can make mistakes and does make mistakes doesn't mean they're not doing a great job or they won't do much better than you but they're still are not perfect so my own understanding of science or my relationship with it is that or the scientific community because uh, my brother was talking about this over the weekend about someone says I don't believe in science or I believe in science or I'm pro-science what does that really mean I think really what we're generally talking about is the well not just science itself but the scientific community and individuals who are science how trusting or not trusting are you of science scientific the scientific community and the things that scientists say or the things that they put forward. That's something that people uh, have differing degrees of acceptance of or different degrees of challenging or questioning. And I think some of the questioning is good, but I also think that we have to recognize and and having humility that you can try to understand many things, but to think that you're gonna be able to challenge or know more than an expert in in a different field I think some level of humility is important to have that I know I can try to look at what climate scientists are saying, I can try to understand it, but I know that no matter how hard I try and how much I study it, I won't know it quite the way that someone who is in the field will know it. So at some level, I have a choice to make of how much I want to trust the scientists. And I think it makes sense to have trust in them that the experts in different fields have the best understanding of that. So to give them a good amount of trust, it's not blanket trust. It doesn't mean it's always going to be right. And I don't think I have to still think at some level for myself. But it's also recognizing there's a certain level of powerlessness that exists there. There's a certain degree that i can never fully understand what's going on you know you go to a doctor and you they give you a diagnosis you might get a second opinion and you might also feel what you're feeling yourself but there is some level of humility of as much as i know my own body i am experiencing my own body they understand the human body better than i do and so it can make sense to look at their opinion differently or as more valuable than my own when it comes to this, which might sound like it shouldn't be true because it's my body. But the same thing is true psychologically. Many people will say that. They say, I don't need to go to a therapist, the psychologist, because I I'm know myself. I'm in my own head. How can they know me? And it's not that they can necessarily know you better than you know yourself, but they can help you actually better understand yourself better. And also they can help see the things that you can't see. Going back to how Uh, human beings are biased, so when we try to conduct science, even we have biases. When it comes to looking at ourselves, we are incredibly biased. We are incredibly unable to see certain things that to someone else might be pretty obvious or might be pretty clear. And so we can benefit greatly from allowing someone to evaluate us, to help us understand ourselves better and then support us in that way. So in just some concluding remarks here about this topic, I do think that science is something important for us to look at in the scientific community is a group that I overall have trust for it doesn't mean a blanket trust but I do believe that there are good people out there trying to do good research trying to understand the world better trying to make things better in different ways for people individually globally and all that I also do recognize that All fields, like this book talked about, there's biases and issues and even corruption within the field of psychological research. And in all fields, that will be there as well. So it's not that all of them are good people, that all the time are only doing good things and there's nothing to worry about. But I do feel, have a confidence in the scientific communities to help figure those things out to make them better. And still know that they'll get things very wrong, intentionally and unintentionally. And so I need to be aware and vigilant about it. But that overall... To trust them and to have trust in the scientific community, to me, does make sense. How much you trust and how you do that is something to look at and it's something to think about yourself. How much you trust the scientific community tends to have some relationship to your feelings about authority in general and how much you are trusting or untrusting Of them, Some people too blindly trust authority figures, some people too harshly reject and are paranoid of them. And it's hard for us again to see that amongst ourselves or within ourselves because we think, well, if I feel a certain way, it's telling me something. And it's hard to know, is it telling you something or is this somewhere where you have a blind spot? Something I think it's worth everyone to look at to understand themselves better. We try to be scientists in understanding ourselves, but recognize that we are also the most biased amongst about ourselves. So although you're the closest to the data, so to speak, you're also in some ways too close to it that you see it in a biased way. Sometimes an outside observer can see you better than you can see aspects of yourself. Let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 310 441 We'll be right back. Back, changing gears a little bit uh, I wanted to talk about expectations in relationships now before I get into that I oftentimes have a hard time connecting with certain advice or things that become a type of saying or might seem like common knowledge because we hear them so much But to me, feel incomplete. I tend to like things to be balanced and hear both sides of things or see both sides of something. And when something is presented in a black and white way, and also to me seems like an unrealistic way, it's hard for me to connect with that. And we see this a lot in uh, psychological self-help types of concepts or pop psychology type of concepts where you'll hear advice or you might hear someone on social media giving a short snippet of talk that's very motivational or inspirational. And at times I can connect with them, but sometimes I have a hard time when they seem unrealistic or like they're missing big aspects of the human experience or trying to take them away. One big area of this is toxic positivity. This notion that you should always be happy, always feel good. You are so lucky to have what you have, so you should always just be grateful and essentially nothing else. And so I do think usually these types of concepts have some validity or value I should say that yeah most of the, a lot of people a lot of us we can recognize that we tend to see the negative we know uh, as human beings we tend to focus more on the negative because we have to be more mindful of negative things that can kill us more than positive things that can make life good because The death is more costly than anything good can be good for us. So we have this negativity bias and we can want to counteract that. But then to go to that other extreme of never feel bad, never be down, I think is not realistic and also very, very harmful because then it contributes to a culture where... We shouldn't share if we're feeling down or we're not feeling okay, and we also should feel ashamed or bad about feeling down because, see, everyone's happy, and you would be wasting your life to be sad or be a waste of your you know what you should be grateful for if you are sad or you should have no bad days. People don't want to be around you. Good vibes only. And those types of things that we might hear that I think are actually quite unfortunate, unrealistic, and I can't connect to them when I think of the genuine human experience I have and everyone I see and get to see both in my practice and just in life in general, that you see that that's not what life is all about and it's missing quite a lot. So here, what I want to talk about today is another one of these kind of adages you hear and type of advice, which is that you should have no expectations in relationships, no expectations. Why do you expect anything? If your partner does this, good. If the partner does that, good. And I never could connect to that either uh, because it doesn't make sense to me to have no expectations. Now, again, there's some value in this because people tend to have expectations that can be unrealistic, that can be very clearly based on childhood pains and wounds and traumas that they're now putting into their new relationships that can be very harm- harmful. So I do think that we can have it in a way too many expectations um, or we might not know them, but the idea of no expectations and N-O, I-, I can't really understand so to me, it's not no expectations, and O, but no expectations, K-N-O-W, as in you need to know your expectations in your relationships because they are there. And essentially, when we look at relationships in some way, they are based on Re- expectations. When you enter a relationship where you start dating someone, you first have some expectations about them or preferences. In some sometimes these words, we might use them interchangeably and they might mean slightly different things, but might overlap. But of what they're going to be like, you already have expectations of um, their age range, certain levels of attractability, certain ways of their behavior. So you have preferences, which in a way can be like an expectation and we even know the way the human brain works it's constantly a predicting machine and is based on expectations so you should expect i think that if you're in a relationship the relationship overall makes you feel better or is beneficial to you than it is hurtful to you doesn't mean Uh, your partner will never let you down or you'll never be sad based on your relationship or because of your relationship. That's unrealistic and another one of those things that people might think they should have but uh, isn't real. Um, But overall, I think it would make sense to have an expectation that the relationship will be beneficial to your life and not hurtful uh, or some basic expectations when you make a commitment to someone. Things like um in fidelity that if you won't cheat on me and even within that i think clarifying the expectations are important because uh what does that mean not cheating for some people flirting could be okay or chatting can be okay for some people it's not so even again here's where we have to know our expectations k n o w know them to then communicate them to our partner so for me it's not that we should have the the no expectations that's unreasonable uh and i think not realistic but we want to recognize what our relationships are. And this part is very important because I think what happens is that people, they hear this advice and think, oh, yeah, I have no expectations. I have no expectations. And they go into their relationship and they might get upset by things or things bother them and they think, I don't have expectations. This is just wrong or it's not good. It's not about expectations. And I think that's the problem is that when we try to lie to ourselves, and say we are experiencing something that's unrealistic, we get ourselves in trouble. Just like we say, oh, I'm, I'm always happy. I'm never going to be sad. That's unrealistic and means either you're going to be detached from your negative feelings, you're going to hide your negative feelings, or if they hit you, you're likely going to feel very, very ashamed and bad because you think you should never feel this way. So if we pride on ourselves on having no expectations, because that's the the thing we should be striving for. And yes, why would I have expectations? They just get in the way of relationships. I think we're actually going to get ourselves in a lot of trouble. So we want to know them, know what they are, start to see what are things you like. You know, someone might have, I have an expectation that my partner asks me about how I'm doing a couple times a day or often. Or have an expectation that my partner does this or does that uh, type of thing or doesn't do certain things. So we want to know them to really understand how we're feeling. So see what's happening in your relationship. You know what, I, I realized I didn't feel good when this was happening. Maybe I have this expectation, which also we can look at it as a want or a need for something from my partner. So I think it's important to know them and then also try to understand them. So it's not enough to say, well, this is my expectation and it's perfect and it's good. Because I think we want to understand, well, where is it coming from? What does that mean for me? Oh, maybe I like my partner to check in with me because I have this uh, feeling from childhood that I'm not seen that my parents, let's say, didn't care about how I was feeling or wouldn't ask me or would forget about me or it felt like they forget about me. So it really means a lot to me. I have this expectation that my partner asks me how I'm doing, and if it doesn't happen, I can feel invisible again. I can feel not seen, and it doesn't feel good. And so you want to understand what they are and also where they're coming from as much as you can. And, of course, things can be a natural human thing that most people have that I like Uh, you know, getting physical touch and affection. How much you like it might be different, of course, person to person, but that can be an expectation that there's some level of physical affection, also sexual relationship, there can be expectations. So we want to try to understand them. And then also you might decide that some of them are unhealthy and you might modify them too and adjust them. So it's not to say when I'm I'm saying know your expectations, I'm not going to the other extreme to say that they're all good and so important and you need to have all of them exactly as they are. But actually, first we have to face it to change it. So let's understand them and say, oh, you know what? This does seem to be coming from... Something that happened or my mom would do this or my dad would do this. And it might even be unfair to put that on to my partner or to take that out on them. And actually, if you realize where it's coming from, you might resolve or help yourself resolve that issue individually or independently or in therapy to no longer have that same feeling about whatever it is. Once you understand it, so you n- know it and then understand it and go deeper into it and you say, oh, this is coming from this. I don't think I need that from my partner because I know he or she loves me, so I don't need to go there now and I can resolve this issue that I'm having of feeling unlovable or not getting loved the way I wanted in childhood and that can affect uh, you know, how I am and I might not need that anymore. So it doesn't mean that all of our expectations are good and right and and don't need to be changed. Sometimes we want to change them because we see they're getting in the way. We're playing out the same dramas in our past, in our current current relationship, or we're taking out some anger from our past on our current partner when they weren't the ones that hurt us and they shouldn't be the ones that have to pay that price. They shouldn't receive that anger. So you might be able to modify them. And then at the end, what's very important is to share and communicate them with your partner. And, and also, of course, to want the same from them, that you want to know their expectations, what are their wants and needs in the relationship. So you let your partner know, because another thing that we can often do is where expectations really can cost us is when we have them and we expect our partner to read our mind and do them and meet them. Oh, I can't believe you didn't do this. You should have done that. You should have known that I wanted this. That's where expectations can really get us in trouble, is when we expect our partner to know them, to read our mind, and to um, meet them and never not meet them. That's unrealistic. So it's very important for us to communicate our expectations. As I said, we can also look at this as communicating our wants and our needs in a relationship to our partner to then help them to respond and to to give us what we want. And also to look at what's possible and what's not possible. It doesn't mean your partner's always gonna be able to or to want to meet those expectations. It could be something that they're not comfortable with or it's not easy for them. And so you now can communicate about what it is and you might even realize okay my partner has a hard time doing this and because it has this meaning for me maybe they can show me that in some other way or maybe i can receive that in another way that feels good that works for them as well so it's not a list of demands when you say expectations it's expressing your wants and needs as coming from you this these are things i want and hopefully your partner will want to also meet them in the best way they can but they can also communicate ways that it might not work for them And going back a second, at times, especially if our needs weren't met in childhood, there can be this feeling that people don't want to meet my needs, or my partner doesn't want to meet my needs and won't want to, and also that my needs were looked at negatively by My parents, they didn't like them. They were either annoyed by them, felt that they were too much or were too focused on their own thing to see that I was hurting and seeing what I needed. So I learned to hide them or to be ashamed of them or to feel bad about my needs. And so, because of that, for these individuals and many people have some needs like this, but for some, it'll be more severe and be more, um, a a big portion of what they're wanting in a relationship, they feel embarrassed or ashamed to share what they're needing and wanting because they were made to feel bad about it. And on top of that, because they doubt that you're going to want to do those things, meet those needs, they want you to be able to read their mind and do it without them asking. And, and some of this is true for all of us. If I tell you, Hey, go buy me something, a special gift when you're over at that store, and then you bring me a gift, it might feel nice, but it'd feel very different if without me asking you and, and got me a special gift. That's going to obviously feel better that you thought about me and met that type of a need or not even a need, but just did something nice for me without me asking. Same thing that someone might say, oh, I like it if you buy me flowers. If you then go buy flowers that day, it will have a very different feeling than if you surprise your partner with flowers when they didn't ask for them. However, expressing our needs over time. If you say you like being surprised by flowers, yes, that first time, like, well, I told her I told him to get them, so it doesn't feel like much. But if they keep doing it because they know it's significant to you, you can start to feel like, yes, they're doing it because they genuinely care and love me and they're doing it without me specifically asking them each time, it does feel different. So we can understand there is a different feeling when someone does something without us asking for it. But we have to recognize that to be realistic in a relationship, we have to know and understand that our partner can't always know what we want and what we need. It's impossible for them to just guess what we want. And we're going to have to tell them. It's like if you go to a restaurant and you say, I hope the the server knows exactly what I want. It's going to bring me that exact meal. It's not likely. You need to tell them what you want and put the modifications you like to get what you want. Similarly, in a relationship, we need to know our, rela- our expectations, K-N-O-W, understand them, modify them as needed, and then share and communicate them with our partner and hope for the same from them as well. Ask them to tell us what they want. So I don't think we can have no expectations, but we can try to know our expectations. And that's important to building a healthy relationship. All right, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in this last segment, I wanted to talk about a very serious and in some ways the most type of serious issue when it relates to mental health and that is suicide. So September is Suicide Prevention Awareness Month, Uh, but as is the case with any of these types of months about awareness or history or whatever it might be, it's not only in that month that it's important to talk about it, but it could be a time to make sure we do focus or at least talk about these issues. And so since I've had the opportunity to do this show for over seven years now, I try to discuss many things, but including taboo topics, because I know that when things stay taboo, they hurt and even kill people in silence. The issues don't go away or become less real. People are just suffering in silence. And so I want to talk about those issues because I know that if we can be more comfortable talking about them and have more awareness about them, then we can then prevent some of that pain from happening and make those things uh, remove the stigma and come out of being a taboo into a very normal or easier thing to talk about. And in general, mental health issues have some of the stigma and taboo about them. Uh, you definitely can see a movement towards normalizing and destigmatizing mental illness. Even in the seven years I've done this show, I've seen some changes in how easy it is or comfortable people are talking about it, celebrities and athletes discussing their mental health issues. And I think that's great, and it's important to applaud and recognize that progress while also recognizing that there is lots of work to do. So when people bring up mental health issues with one another, most people will freeze or freak out or not know what to do and so what this happens with lots of people but i hear it a lot with my clients that when they want to share about mental health struggles that they're having or something they're going through people tend to go away or they don't know how to respond so they ignore or go into a different topic because they feel stuck and i can get it it's not easy to talk about mental health issues, we all tend to feel uncomfortable talking about negative things in general and think we need to avoid them. Part of our um, discomfort with the negative things about life that make us avoid it, but they don't go away. So we tend to feel like we don't know what to say. And importantly, another issue here that comes up is people tend to think, well, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do to fix it? And because we feel too much pressure when something like this comes up where we think that when the person brings up an issue, we're supposed to solve it, we avoid it altogether. And this is what happens oftentimes in communication in general, where you'll hear it from friends, but also commonly between uh, partners where one person just shares about what they're going through and the other person comes in and gives a solution when actually the person doesn't want a solution. And so we naturally tend to be problem solvers. Some people say, I- I'm a natural problem solver, and they might be a little bit more wired that way, but everyone has that sense. If we see something's wrong, we want to fix it. So if someone tells us they're not feeling okay, we think it's our responsibility, or by bringing it up, they're putting that responsibility on us when it's not at all the case. Even if you are a psychologist and your friend tells you they are depressed, it's not up to you to now fix it for them. They need to get some kind of outside help or they might need outside help. Uh, But there's going to be lots of other things that are going on that are going to have to affect what's happening. But we shouldn't feel this pressure that we have to fix it. And because of that, it'll make it easier for us to talk about it because you might even be afraid to ask. What if I ask my friend if they are depressed and if they say yes, uh oh, now what do I do? Will I be responsible to help them, to fix them, to change how they're feeling, to figure out exactly what to do? That can seem like too much, so I might as well not ask. But we need to recognize that by asking, we're not saying we're going to solve whatever the response is. We're just saying, I care, so I want to know how you're doing, how you're feeling. I won't solve it. But we know that talking about things can make people feel less alone in their struggle and can be helpful, even if it doesn't completely take away the pain, it might make it slightly more bearable. Just like how people respond when someone loses a loved one. They feel like, oof, that's the grief is heavy, plus we tend to want to avoid thinking about death, facing our own death and the death of loved ones, and we don't know how to make them feel good. Their family member died. I can't do anything about it. So we go away. And It's not that you're supposed to fix it. You're not supposed to take away their pain, but you might make it slightly more bearable to go through what they're going through. And so we see this even more strongly when it comes to a topic like suicide, which is of course a mental health concern. It's really a societal concern and a human issue in so many ways. But when we look at mental health, People are very afraid to ask about suicide for all these same reasons that um, it's it's scary. What if I now have to get involved? I won't know what to do. Am I supposed to, to fix the issue? That's too much. Even I remember in graduate school, when I first started seeing clients, it was a little bit uncomfortable for me. So I can get it that I've now had years of experience of talking about suicide, obviously here, but also with clients. And so it's more comfortable for me. But I remember feeling very, very uncomfortable at first having to bring it up or asking a client about suicidality or if they were depressed to bring it up. How do I ask them? Is it okay to ask? And one of the things that people often fear is what if I introduce the idea to them? So let's say the thinking is they're kind of down, but they're okay, or maybe they're very down, but they haven't thought about suicide. And now by me asking them about suicide, I introduce the idea, now they're gonna go do it, and then that's gonna be blamed on me, so I shouldn't mention it. But that's not how this happens or not what happens with suicide. People know about suicide, although we don't talk about it, everyone is aware of it. And when people get to that low of a state, when they're feeling that way, the thoughts come to them. It is coming from a place of hopelessness, of feeling that they're in so much pain, feeling that they have so much uh, pain inside of them that's not going to go away, that they, unfortunately, we can say this idea comes to people. You're not going to be the one creating it where they're like, oh, I'm feeling so bad and I don't think I can go on, but I have no idea what I can do. And now you're going to ask them and it's going to introduce the idea and they they are going to know what to to do now. So we need to take away that um, almost like a myth that we might have is what if by asking I create the problem? It's not going to happen. But by asking you might literally save a life. And so I hope people will be more bold and take that what might feel like a risk of asking your friends, loved ones, wherever it might be that you see that might be struggling suffering from mental pain and anguish asking them first of all just how are they doing before we even get to the issue of suicide be willing to take that first type of a risk and step of genuinely asking them not just in a hey how are you doing where really it's more about a greeting to say hello rather than a genuine question of inquiring how someone is feeling but in a more Uh, slowed down type of way where you're genuinely showing them I really want to know how you feel or even I've noticed it seems like you're not feeling well which might open the door and make it easier for them to go there so first just asking how they're doing Um, and secondly if it seems that they're really not doing well to be open to asking them that if, if they've considered suicide and I can get it, it could feel uncomfortable. But remember, it's not that if they say yes, now all the responsibility is on you. You can try to seek out resources or help them seek out resources uh, depending on how serious they are when it comes to suicide. And suicidal thinking or suicidal ideation, there's a whole range from a passive type of suicidal ideation, something like, oh, I wish I was, wasn't was alive because so much is going on, all the way to the other extreme where they really have a plan and a they know when they're going to take action to take their own life. And there's a huge difference between some of this passive suicidal ideation and a strong suicidal intent. So even if they say they've thought about suicide, it doesn't mean it's a one type of one, one thing, a monolith, where it's exactly always the same thing and means that we react in the same way. There's a huge range between that of just, oh, I'm f- thinking about it, but I don't think I would do it. All sorts of different ways that it can show up. Um, it's very nuanced. It's not just black and white, and so asking them, as I've said many times on this show, a few things is gonna can happen. One is that maybe they're feeling down, but they haven't at all considered suicide. So they might say, "Oh no, I'm not." feeling that low or that way, maybe they laugh because they're surprised you think they're doing that bad when they're not doing that bad. Um, Whatever the case may be, you know, that, that happens. And even if that happens, as I like to say, it's not that something bad has happened. Yes, in that moment, they're not. But what you've done, which is really something important and beautiful when we look at relationships, is you've created a bridge that has shown them that this topic is not something i'm afraid to talk about so if they are ever suicidal they will know that you are someone that they can talk to in that way an ally someone that they would be able to open up with which is actually quite a wonderful thing or even if they're not suicidal they know hey this person's not afraid to go there to go into the heavy stuff and so i say this for parents a lot too that show your children that you can handle any topic of conversation You won't force them to talk about anything, but you can handle and are open to talking about anything. And so sometimes asking about different topics, even if they say no, or even if it's not true for them, will at least give them the idea there's this bridge now between you and me that we can cross if we ever need to cross it. So maybe you'll be saving their life in the future by creating that bridge. And of course, if they are suicidal, you might quite literally be saving their life. Uh, because now you can help them get help or find a way that they don't take their own life. Sadly, although people, I think they think this way because it gives us some peace of mind, we think, well, if someone's suicidal, they were going to do it anyway. Or suicide is not preventable. People who are suicidal, there's just they made up their mind, that's it. And sometimes people get to some point where they might be there, but before they got there, suicide is preventable it is something that we can stop, we can uh, help people before they take that choice to take their own life. So it is easier to think because we don't want to think, well, I could have done something, and it could be very hard people that know someone who takes their own life, can have a lot of guilt about that. And it's a very complicated type of grieving that they might go through because of that. But we want to learn from those experiences and also recognize that even though, yes, when people are severely depressed and have severe mental illnesses, helping is not easy and it doesn't mean, oh yeah, we can just quickly fix what's going on. It it could be a very complicated process. But we definitely don't want to go to the other extreme to think that well, if someone's suicidal, they're going to do it anyway. And I've heard that so many times, even from some mental health professionals, that who am I to try to convince them to save their own life or to stay alive, Uh, which I think is really, really sad and harmful and very destructive for someone to say that, because from what we understand of mental illness and understand of suicide, it's in no way the case that suicides are preventable. I mentioned Kevin Hines recently. I had him on the show a few years ago. He jumped off The golden gate bridge and to take his own life and fortunately he survived it lots of injuries from it but survived it Um, and now he goes around talking about suicide prevention because he realizes that he didn't want to end his own life so he felt that down but that feeling wasn't a forever feeling as feelings tend not to be and so he didn't want to die or it wasn't that that was the only option for him so please Check in on your loved ones. Ask them if you feel like they're not doing well. Don't be afraid to ask and don't be afraid to not only ask about how they're doing, but to go deeper if need be and ask about suicide. Don't be afraid of it. You could be saving someone's life and either way, you're showing them that you really care and that they can talk to you about anything, including something as serious as suicide. All right. That brings us to the end of today's show. As always, a big thank you to Razale here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulaqui. Have a wonderful day.